0: Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So let's just launch into retinal regeneration. A new type of hybrid cell called a cell fusion technique may open up potential therapy with adult stem cells to treat retinal damage and visual impairment. A new study with some very exciting uh, findings. Uh, The hybrid cells were injected into a growing retinal organoid. We've talked about organoids before. It's a model built using stem cells that closely resembles well, essentially in this case, uh, a disembodied eyeball. So the function of the cells of the human retina are on the inside of a ball of semi-matured stem cells. The hybrid cells that were created successfully engrafted into the tissue and differentiated into cells that closely resemble ganglion cells. This is the actual visual receptor. So we've Obviously, if a person is blind and they've lost their visual receptors, which happens uh, uh, with glaucoma, for example, and also with eye trauma and other issues, you will, once the nerves are dead, the nerves are dead. Well, maybe not so much. These stem cells, surprisingly enough, differentiated in the setting of an eyeball like structure into ganglion cells. Now, cell fusion is, um, events are actually. Uh, when two cells combine into a single cell, these are known to be a, pos- a, a possible mechanism that contributes to tissue degeneration. It's extremely rare in humans, but the, the phenomenon has been consistently seen in humans. Now, these would be tetraploid cells. In other words, with four Chromosomes, or two sets of complete chromosomes. And they've been found in the human liver, the brain, and the gastrointestinal tract. And the researchers in this study, which was led by the uh, Center for Genomic Regulation in Barcelona, Spain, found that cell fusion events also take place in the human retina. So they tested whether these cell fusion events could differentiate into cells that turn into neurons. They used Mueller glia, which are a secondary uh, cell, a kind of immune cell. Glia cells are a very important supporting role, but they took glial cells and they fused them with stem cells that were derived from adult human adipose tissue or from bone marrow to readily available sources of stem cells. The hybrid cells were injected into a growing retinal organoid. This is that thing I mentioned, a model that closely resembles the function of the human retina. And the we we are now able to build these organoids, and they help us do a lot of this kind of research because we can see whether the – it's basically just is the environment of the retina – causing the stem cell, or in this case, the tetraploid fusion cell, to get the signals it needs to tell it to turn into a neuron. Now, salamanders and fish can repair damage called to the retina thanks to their Mueller glia, which is what gave the researchers the idea. They have already observed these glial cells differentiating into neurons that either rescue or replace the damaged neurons. But mammalian Mueller glia, try saying that three times fast, have lost this regenerative capacity, which means retinal damage or degradation leads to visual impairment for our life. So this finding brings us one step closer. Now, it's still a journey of a few thousand steps to get to injecting this into a damaged eyeball in an actual person, but it's a step forward in the right direction. Now, One thing we really have to solve is understanding why these hybrid cells, four sets of chromosomes, don't turn into a cancer. And the authors of the study think the retina may have some kind of mechanism that we don't understand, similar to what happens in the liver, which contains tetraploid cells that sit there and just act as a genetic reservoir under, uh, excuse me, reservoir undergoing mitosis in response to stress and injury. And this sort of just backup cells in the cupboard, seeds, if you will, a seed bank that exists in the liver, maybe that can be induced in the eye. The liver is known for its amazing ability to regenerate. And in fact, when you look as a physician, one of the liver diseases we see quite a lot of is cirrhosis of the liver. And of course, this occurs in several different situations, but usually as a result of exposure to a toxin, whether it's an overdose of mitochondria or a mushroom toxin or chronic use of high levels of that good old uh, liver toxin alcohol. When the liver tries to heal, it does a very good job of generating new cells, but the but the macro structure of these new cells leaves something to be desired. So the physical structure of the liver as a filter doesn't come back at the, at the level that the cell count uh, recovers. And as a result, you lose functionality. Now it'd be very, very interesting to see whether or not some of this research about controlling uh hyperproliferation of tetraploid cells actually gives us some ways to help with uh this tendency of the liver to to structurally scar and lose function but that too is a bit far in the future still as i stated at the top of the hour the theme of this hour of ask dr don is positive science news and i've got quite a few really interesting uh and Just heartwarming, optimistic stories to take you through this hour. So let's move on to something really earth-shaking. This, to the best of our knowledge, is of the people writing the case study, which it came out of Switzerland, the Weiss Center for Bio and Neuroengineering, has done something truly amazing. They have taken a patient who was fully locked in, completely unable to communicate through any method whatsoever, and restored his ability to communicate verbally. We'll get into the details of how this was done in just a moment, but it's an amazing step forward. Some of you may be familiar with a book that came out uh, 15 or 20 years ago called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and this was written by a Frenchman named Jean-Dominique Bauby, who had a severe stroke in middle age and became locked in, basically had no ability to communicate until through an arduous process, he learned to use his eyeballs to essentially communicate a yes or no. And then through the incredible devotion of a caregiver team who sat there with a literally a board with the alphabet and just pointed to one letter after the another until he blinked and indicated, yes, that's the letter. He spelled out, with the help of his team, an entire book, which is nothing short of phenomenal. There's also an award-winning movie that I think does a very good job of depicting what it's like to have this locked-in syndrome. And in the case of uh, The gentleman in question, he had it because he had ALS, which is a neurodegenerative disorder that leads to a progressive loss of voluntary muscle function in the body. People initially start off with loss in the lower extremities. It can look a little bit about like Guillain-Barre syndrome, but it continues to go up and it's irreversible, unlike Guillain-Barre, which often does reverse. The individual will eventually lose the ability to breathe because his or her diaphragm becomes paralyzed. Uh, They have to accept artificial uh, ventilation. Many of them develop uh, bulbar paralysis, which means they lose the, the facial muscles. They can no longer speak or swallow, protect their airway, or even blink their eyes. At that point, the individual has lost the ability to communicate with anyone. And so there's been research about implantable brain Computer interfaces, and this has been done in monkeys. In fact, there's the famous story of the monkey learning to uh, control a joystick to deliver a banana to himself. But it's been difficult in humans to achieve language, and this was a this is a complex situation. Obviously, the researchers implanted two intracortical microelectrode arrays in two areas of the motor cortex. And the we'll, we'll get to the details of the story, but I'm going to start with telling you the story because it's truly fascinating. So we start off with a person who had been able to use eye movement for a while to communicate, but then lost the ability to even open his eyes or blink. And that's when he gave consent to have this device implanted in his brain. Interestingly enough, and we're talking year and a half out from this original procedure, the actual implantation of the brain-computer interface has not created any uh, adverse results or brain inflammation. It took a lot of lab research to get to this point. But one day after the implantation, the patient was asked to use his previously effective communication strategy, employing eye movement, to... Uh, simply moving his eyes or imagining that he was moving his eyes. Unfortunately, the sensor did not pick up any kind of classifiable, translatable neural signal. Turns out, by the way, that everybody is wired differently enough that there's really no standard way to do this. It has to be a learning process. Passive movements of the patient's hand, fingers, thumb, and wrist evoked consistent neural firing readings, if you will, and fingerprints on several electrodes so they could pick up his sensing his movement. But when he was instructed to attempt to imagine moving his hand, his tongue, or his foot, they couldn't get any consistent responses. They kept working at this and basically were unable to get anywhere. On the 86th day after implantation, they changed their methodology. They decided to use uh, auditory feedback using a pair of headphones of the neural activity, biofeedback, in other words, to see if the patient could learn how to modulate something. And they used a communication uh, tool that's also been used, by the way, to help increase, uh, well, to treat Alzheimer's disease and increase synaptic flexibility in people with that condition, which is tone modulation. I find it fascinating. Tone modulation means that you play a tone and the person has to essentially move a, uh, a joystick back and forth or a lever back and forth and match the tone exactly so that there's no beat from interference with the two tones. And on the first try, the patient was able to successfully modulate his neurofiring rate and match the frequency of the feedback to the target. Uh, He got good at it by day 98, so it only took two weeks before he was able to to begin to match with 80% uh, effectiveness, so a pretty high score in terms of his tune modulation. Effectively, I think what was probably going on in his head was that he was humming the tune, just like when you're taking vocal lessons, you learn to match the tone on the piano or the little uh, if you're in a choir you know they play a on that little pipe and then you all start singing all match to each other well the brain is obviously very good at doing that and they were able to use that for the output part of the neurofeedback strategy so as i said he was matching by day 98 by day 106 He was able to use the modulation of the neural firing rate to select letters and to free spell. So by day 106, he was able to spell. Each session started with 10 minutes of just letting him rest and reading what his brain was doing, creating a background that had to be filtered out. Then they had him do target tones, matching the frequency, seeing how he did. But once he could hold the tone for 250 microseconds, they began giving him a reward sound when he got to that 250 microseconds. So that told him that he was doing it correctly. Otherwise he wouldn't have had the feedback. Once they plugged in the neural feedback, he made rapid, rapid progress. And basically 107 days after, uh, implantation. He was able to spell out phrases. The first thing he said, and this was in German, was, first I would like to thank uh, Niels and his device and team. And then after that, he communicated a lot about what he needed. First of all, head position very high from now on. Everybody must use gel on my eye more often. When visitors are here, head position always very high. He began asking for social interactions. He began asking for entertainment. Uh, On day 203, he said, I'd like to listen to the album by Tool, a German band, loud. And on day 245, he asked for a beer. So he began to actually be able to interact with his son, his wife, and also because he was bilingual in both English and German, he spelled in English to English speakers on the care team and German to uh, German speakers. He also began ordering his menu. He began being able to talk to his son and ask him what movie they wanted to watch together. It's so great to think that this person who, as a, relatively young man in his 30s faced a decade or more of locked-in, possibly madness, being able to reach out, help his caregivers make him comfortable, and live something resembling a life. Now, I have to share with you about that kind of a life because I had the uh, amazing experience of having a patient who had ALS and was on a ventilator for over 10 years, who was never lost his ability to use his eyes and was able to communicate with his eyes. And I I worked with him through the entire course of his illness until his final days. And I I will tell you that the pure human experience of the heroism of him, his family, and his friends— the internet network that was created around him, the amount of people he was able to help. This was not a man I admired when he was my patient initially. I thought he was kind of, you know, just your regular surfer guy, and, you know, tech guy, worked for uh, worked in, uh, in tech, and was a hedonist, a grasshopper in the Aesop's, well, nice enough guy, you know, but nothing special. Well, the special emerged over time and adversity. And it taught me an important lesson, which is that we all have unexplored depths. We all have untapped courage within us if we can reach down deeply enough and find it at the moment that it's called upon. I'm confident that for all of us it's in there somewhere. So we're gonna to move to some of the emails I've received in the last couple of weeks. This first one from Shaol in Israel, and Shawl writes uh, Dear Dr. Dong, although I sleep with a CPAP for snoring, I still wake up with dry mouth and throat. So I tried mouth taping and it solved the problem. Is there any side effect for taping my mouth every night? And also any problem with the glue? Well, Shal is a very uh, inventive person. And while he's not my patient, he's certainly uh, someone I'm proud to call a Internet friend. And, Shal, you won't have a problem with this, but I do recommend using paper tape. Over time, some of the other tapes can lead to an allergic reaction, and you'll be able to figure that out right away because you'll have a persistent red square on your face where you peeled the tape off. Now, it's not unusual once you peel tape for that to be there for a few minutes, maybe half an hour, but if it's persisting, for a day, you know you're starting to develop a sensitivity to that tape. You've essentially failed the patch test, and it's time to switch to a different uh, product. So paper tape, I think, would be your best. Um, our next email comes from Michael in Fremont. And uh, subject, why not use low-dose naltrexone? Dear Dr. Don. My wife's 90-year-old dad in Mexico is recovering from a leg deep venous thrombosis following a right hip replacement. Yep, it's common, folks, for the immobility of the surgery to put you itself. And then also, of course, you're not moving around as much as you normally are. It puts you at risk for a deep venous thrombosis. He had a month of eloquence and then stopped. He's completed his days on Lovenox and is now on Elicus twice daily recently, his stool was guaiac positive for blood. His stool's not black, and he's been on a vegetable based iron replacement. Uh, the guaiac test is can be fooled by high doses of iron. There is a test called fecal immunoglobulin testing, which is much more uh, accurate, and I would recommend that uh Michael that you See if that if you can send one of those down to your father and just have him send it back for you. I'm not. I think they're probably available in Mexico, but I don't practice medicine there, so I don't want to vouch for that. Good news, however, is that his he returning to Michael's letter. His hemoglobin went up from 10 to 11. He just started on a proton pump inhibitor, 20 milligrams twice a day. Uh, what are your thoughts on my adding low dose naltrexone? I'm unable to find any literature on blood coagulation. My thoughts of this are like LDN smoothing out immunity and hormones could have positive results on his blood coagulation, possibly preventing more blood clots. It won't, if it won't hurt and potentially might help, why not? Well, let's start with what low dose naltrexone really does, uh, Michael. It's, uh, helpful in, uh, autoimmune disease where a person is making antibodies against self because it modulates immunity and as I mentioned at the top of my reply here, the uh, the source of the DVT is almost certainly immobilization, and the duration of eloquence in situations like this will generally be for maybe six months, but not in necessarily longer than that, because presumably by then he'll have recovered his mobility and be moving around. Now, long-term eloquence is very safe, except for the potential for bleeding. All of the anticoagulants, including Coumadin, our old standby, do have this as a side effect. Uh, so no, no real surprises there, obviously. You want to stay away from any kind of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. In terms of your desire to prevent more blood clots, I would say that low-dose naltrexone would not be my first choice I think he'd be better off with a combination of natokinase, serapep, which is uh, a anticoagulant derived from, uh, natto, serapeptidase, which is uh, derived from a bacteria, uh, and also maybe some pycnogenol, which is a pine uh, bark derivative. The combination of natokinase and Picnogenol has been shown in double blind studies to reduce the risk of DVT in individuals who have a prior history of DVT and it's been uh, this was done in a study where they tested frequent flyers who's had who'd had a DVT and they showed essentially a benefit that was quite substantial and of course very low toxicity and no risk of uh blood, of uh, blood coagulation the mechanism here is a little bit different because these things break down some of the coagulation proteins rather than impairing the coagulation enzymes like eliquis uh, or coumadin. I also recommend making sure that people have a high level of omega-3 in their blood and if you're in if you don't want to purchase uh, omega-3 uh products because they're prohibitively expensive, just eating a can of sardines every day is actually a really good way to get high levels of omega-3 in your blood and there's you know several ways to make them quite palatable it's an acquired taste but a taste that perhaps he should consider acquiring and moving onward to our next email this one from Martin in uh, Santa Cruz primary care physician dear dr don i've had re- uh, two relatively young physicians leave their practice in the last 4 years And had to switch from another before that. I'm now looking for my fourth PCP in 10 years. Perhaps my goal of establishing a history with one doctor is not realistic. I'm a firm believer in preventative care, annual physicals, and having my doctor know my medical history. Any suggestions on the best way to do this, considering I will be switching doctors and medical providers yet again? I'm also seeing providers scheduling more appointments with nurse practitioners and PAs instead of doctors. How do you feel about that? Well, um, I would say I have mixed feelings about it, Martin. Uh, the e- economics have taken over uh, medicine. We can thank uh, St. Ronald for getting rid of a time-honored and I think very wise prohibition against the corporate practice of medicine by creating a loophole in 1998, which, as you might expect, Wall Street swarmed into. uh nurse practitioners and physician assistants are cheaper to pay. They are very effective at primary care, and I have nothing against them uh, and nothing negative to say about them. Be- they are allowed to spend more time with a patient. They do work with protocols and flow char- charts, and they're very good if uh, you are working with a small set of problems, and a straightforward presentation. Uh, It sounds to me like you're probably working with a large multi-specialty group uh, and working with their providers. Uh, Primary care and preventative care are absolutely not well reimbursed, period, amen, not well reimbursed. And so they effectively act as the loss leader for large multi-specialty groups. Procedures, on the other hand, are extremely well reimbursed. So large multi-specialty groups treat primary care doctors as PAs, the influx of nurse practitioners and uh, PAs into the role of the first person you see, the filter, if you will. Uh, well, you can expect that to happen. You'll expect that the... Pro- Over time, the primary care doctors that work for these large multi-specialty groups will be supervising four to five uh, physician extenders, as they're called in the the, uh, large multi-group vernacular, because it's much cheaper for them. So my advice to you is sign up with a concierge or a direct primary care group and pay a little extra for that relationship. Your insurance simply doesn't value it. The reason for the rapid turnover is because the large multi-specialty groups will pay new doctors a signing bonus because then they always have people with open practices. That signing bonus, uh, however, runs out after a year or two, and then the individual finds themselves on a bit of a hamster wheel trying to see enough patients in a small amount of time to keep their income from dropping. And, of course, by then, if they have not purchased a home in the area, something that many people have not found possible immediately, even at a high-level profession like medicine, well, uh, then they move on. And uh, people, uh, we have now this phenomenon of traveling nurses, and I honestly believe that this the economic system that we've created is likely to also produce a generation of traveling doctors. They can make more money as hospitalists or as doctors who simply move like gypsies through the system, collecting signing bonus after signing bonus and, you know, sort of a perpetual state of arrested development in terms of the relationships that as far as I'm concerned, are the biggest and greatest reward for me personally that I've had in my career. Uh, financially, fa- family practice is not a good bet, but in terms of those intangibles, it's huge. So I do encourage people to follow a career in primary care. I have nothing but respect to my physician extender colleagues Uh, to use that term facetiously, to the nurse practitioners and the physician's assistants, all very intelligent people who become very experienced and themselves, I think, chafe under the strictures of the protocols and the paradigms that they are supposed to follow. They need perhaps a bit more self-determination as well, but again, that's not economically efficient perhaps, although it would be very, very good for patient care. Let's go to another good news science article. This one, really astonishing. Vaccines for cancer, we've already seen, right? We have a vaccine against cervical cancer, and it has made a transformational difference in the lives of an entire generation of women who literally are not, Likely at all to ever get cervical cancer, a disease that was so common that it was prior to the invention of the Pap smear and the development of therapies for the for the pre cancer, it was so common that it was not unusual. It was at, It was at the level of men of men of fifty have heart attacks, women of thirty five are widowed by metastatic cervical cancer that goes away. Well, we are now looking at the potential for a vaccine against breast cancer. Wow. And scientists working on this have uh, a really interesting idea that I'm going to share with you. And researchers at the Cleveland Clinic uh, have begun the first of its kind study. It's a phase one study. But this vaccine will ultimately prevent at least triple negative breast cancer, but possibly some of the other forms of the disease. Uh, The first step, having invented this vaccine, is to determine the maximum tolerated dose of the vaccine, and they're going to use patients with early stage triple negative breast cancer and evaluate their immune response. They're also going to look at the side effects and ensure that the vaccine produces an appropriate immunologic response at at a usable dose. And how do you do that? Because breast cancers all have a very um, unusual and different and various response. So, the retired protein hypothesis is how you do it. And what is on earth is that? Well, it's based on work by Vincent Tuhi, who developed what he calls this retired protein hypothesis. This Postulates that there are proteins expressed by certain tissues only at certain periods of time, and that tumors then aberrantly express these proteins. So they might be a target for immunity for immunotherapy. Specifically, um, our trial is looking at lactase, alpha lactase, albumin, which is a milk protein that's expressed during lactation, but otherwise not expressed by normal tissues some 70% of triple negative breast cancers overexpress proteins. So the idea is if you can only if you can find a protein that's only expressed by breast cancer then you might be able to train the immune system to attack those cells as soon as it's expressed. So they're going to immunize patients against this alpha lactalbumin at some point after they've finished childbearing, of course, because once you're nursing, you'd get serious inflammation in your breast, an autoimmune reaction, and uh, they should be immu- this should confer immunity to a large portion of triple negative breast cancer patients. Our first trial is being done in patients with stage two to stage three; they've been through their standard therapy, and so far as we know, they're free of disease. But this cancer is a very evil one, and often there are micrometastases that come back later on. Uh, what's that, what happens after that, they've, once they've figured out dose and toxicity and immune response? Well, then they're going to look at women who are undergoing preventative mastectomy due to a genetic risk for breast cancer like BRCA1 and immunize them prior to the surgery. Then when their breasts are removed, they'll look at the Uh, breasts and make sure that there's no evidence of inflammation in the breasts that don't contain cancer. So who would get this? Eventually would be people at high risk for uh, negative breast cancer, such as BRCA2 or the PALB mutation. And this uh, protection, well, this could be really huge. So What are we looking at? Well, we're looking at something that could be as big a game changer for breast cancer as we saw for cervical cancer. Now, let's see if we can get our caller on the line. Hello, Aline. Are you there? Yes, Yes, dear doctor. I so appreciate and Enjoy your wonderful presentations over the air, medical science. Just a question about aging as we get old. Why do we lose body hair or become scant? and why do we sometimes come to drool in our sleep <laughs> <laughs> well then... i've been drooling in my sleep since i was a child so <laughs> i um i think that you we tend to sleep with our mouth open more as we age due to relaxation of the tissues in the back of the nose so that we and we don't have uh, we can't breathe through our nose as well mm. so that's a big piece of it you'll see mm. children who are mouth breathers because they have adenoids uh, or allergies. And indeed, mm-hmm. as we age, that those passageways just don't work as well, like many mm-hmm. other things. Mm-hmm. But I like your first question, which is, I'm going to pot you down for just a moment. Um, I like your first question because it leads into the next article, which is all about uh, why we, well, you mentioned why we don't grow hair anymore, right? Well, body hair. Body hair. And well, also the hair on the top of our scalp gets a little scant. And we get wrinkles and our skin gets a little loose and flabby. But hair, uh, you may not realize, is extremely expensive to make uh, from an energy standpoint. And as we age, the energy factories in our cells become, that's the mitochondria, which produce ATP, which is essentially the gasoline that our cellular engines use to do absolutely everything. Nothing moves forward without ATP. Fun fact, you have about 14 seconds of ATP stored in your body at any given moment. And the, the drug cyanide uh, actually poisons the, the recycling of that ATP, which is why it's such an effective and rapid poison. So uh, the mitochondria are key to aging. And so I want to talk a little bit about some research that uh, is coming around on mitochondria and multiple labs, mitochondrial transplants as a, well, ultimately, eventually, it may be a cure for many of the ills of aging. But right now, it's actually being done in human children who have been born with severe uh, life-threatening birth defects and require surgery. So I'm going to tell you the story of Avery. She's a six-year-old who goes to dance class several times a week, but she almost died at birth from a heart defect. She had to have her first open heart surgery before she even left the hospital within hours of birth, and the procedure left much of her heart severely damaged and basically pumping at only about 50% of its capacity. So, they started preparing her for a heart transplant, but they noticed that they they noticed that a part of her heart was still salvageable, and a researcher did this amazing experimental procedure. He harvested uh, mitochondria and gave that literally injected it into the heart of this child just a Hail Mary pass if there ever was one, but it worked. The healthy mitochondria were able to get into the damaged cells and help them heal from the inside. Day by day, her heart got stronger and stronger. She's now had a total of six heart surgery, and she she still needs to go in regularly. But that infusion of mitochondria jump-started the cellular processes. Hey, guess what? It takes energy to heal. And if the cells are exhausted and don't have the inner don't have any extra energy to donate to the healing process the healing process doesn't happen the same as cellular process is also required to heal damaged brains and maybe even other organs in a way that drugs have never uh been able to do so this is very new it's so new in fact that it doesn't even have a lot of mitoc- a lot of government support this mitochondrial work and as i said Mitochondria makes ATP, and we've known for a long time that mitochondrial dysfunction is kind of the universal driver of disease. We see mitochondrial dysfunction when the tissue is damaged by disease. The faul- faulty mitochondria are the result. Poor blood flow will cause mi- faulty mitochondria. Uh, lead, arsenic, cyanide, uh, my mic- uh, Fungal toxins, other fox toxins, all target uh, mitochondria. We see this happen in Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease. We've been so focused with those diseases on the protein Im, uh, implications and the amyloid plaque that I think we've missed the boat because it's the amyloid plaque is the result of not being able to clean up the amyloid plaque. And in a healthy brain, the cells have the ability to clean up the amyloid plaques as it forms, and you don't get the accumulation. When the garbage trucks run out of gas, that's when the accumulation begins. And ultimately, the mitochondria die from overwork. And as a result, the cells are told to die by the mitochondria. They are, in fact, responsible for pulling the destruct switch on any dying cell. Coronary artery disease is another example. And the researchers, you know, this mitochondrial transfer stuff goes all the way back to 1982 when researchers were trying to see if if antibiotic uh, resistance could be transferred by mitochondria. Uh, Spoiler alert, yes, it can. But mitochondrial transfer researched uh, for a very long time uh, until a Dr. Singh uh, started... Developing this in 2018, they published a study where they had created genetically engineered mice who produce fewer mitochondria. These mice showed signs of premature aging, wrinkled skin, hair loss. And when the cells reactivated uh, the gene to boost the number of mitochondria, the mice once again became hairy and taut skin. In other words, putting the mitochondria back actually rejuvenated the uh, the mice. Maybe that's a part of what's going on with that young blood transfusion thing that was all the rage uh, in research a couple of years ago. Maybe it's mitochondrial growth factors in the younger person's blood uh, that are a piece, or maybe there's some third step in there that is in the young blood that ultimately leads to mitochondrial regeneration. That would be a fruitful line of inquiry. But but what we've got is we've got a really, really amazing situation of being able potentially to rejuvenate cells. And so I'm extremely excited about uh, this. It's going to take a long time before this leaves the, uh, the research lab because you have to sit there, take the muscle sp- uh, specimen while you're while the person's in the operating room harvest the mitochondria and then prepare an injection to inject them back into the cells. But, uh, as we talked about with Avery's case study, uh, it worked back all the way back in 2015. And so now we have to look at, can it be done with people who've had cardiac arrest? And in a rat study, uh, Uh, Dr. Hayashida used this technique to inject about a billion mitochondria into the leg veins of a rat after he'd given them cardiac arrest and performed CPR. And what he got their survival rate up to was 90% of the rats surviving cardiac arrest compared to only 40% in those who received placebo uh, injections. And what they also found that was exciting is that some of the mitochondria actually went into the brain, even though it's been injected into the femoral artery. They were aiming for the heart, but they hit the brain. And since that leads to the possibility that we might be able to do something about stroke patients. And the research is very preliminary, but a team led by Yasmin Sanchek at the University of Washington did exactly that. They treated three stroke patients uh, who were having open brain surgery to treat their stroke they gave them a mitochondrial transplant and two out of the three recovered there's it's very hard to judge whether it did anything but there was an interesting thing about the radiology there's a a thing on the scans that shows um luxury perfusion that's called it's a fuzzy cloudy wisp in the brain that shows brain damage and the wisps don't go away even after the person survives the stroke but they showed a radiologist the scans of people who'd received the mitochondria he did not he or she doesn't say did not know that they had received any kind of treatment and commented on that how very unusual it was that there wasn't that the luxury perfusion on serial scans had actually diminished now, the mitochondria are very safe. There's no inflammatory response being generated here. It's a question about tissue rejection. Maybe there won't be. Uh, think about using mitochondrial extracts for wound healing. Maybe we could use skin uh, mitochondria from stem cells and get. Even better results. At this point, we've only been doing it from adju- adult mature cells, and as any regular listener knows, stem cells may be the key to rejuvenation. So, sorry to talk so long, Eileen. I'll let you follow up with a question. Oh, no, that was fascinating. Um, mitochondria. So I can look and see more research. M o d a c o n d r i a. Is it? No, it's, it's actually m. It's actually m i. T is in Tom O, oh. and then the uh, and then C H O N D R I A, so mitochondria. If would be uh, how you would pronounce it, but the H, oh. like it often is, is silent. Sounds Greek to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much for the call. It led so beautifully into what I had to say. One, 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 one more question. Dr. Singh was, is a, a, a Chinese-American doctor? I'm not sure. He could also be Indian-American. Uh, I don't have his first name because, unfortunately, when I printed this article, uh, the ads kind of obscured some of the paragraphs, and I uh, didn't catch that, and I'm not sure I would have scrubbed it anyway, except going back to the article and writing the, the stuff that was obscured by the ads, but I'll uh, definitely not make that mistake again. Uh, with that website. So thanks very much for the call. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to move on to uh, yet another good news story. I hope you're feeling optimistic and uh, enthused. And now we've got some, uh, well, just good news, right? Something uh, we'd all like to hear is the number of healthy years a person lives is on the average increasing. Right. I said that. On the average increasing, even for people with common chronic health conditions. This is a new study analyzing data from two large population-based studies of people 65 or over in England. They looked at, cog- it's called the cognitive function and aging studies about 7,000 people uh, in 1991, followed them for a couple years. Then another uh, 7,000 and change in 2008, followed them for two years Overall, men gained 4.6 years in life expectancy and 3.7 years in disease-free life, ex- uh, life extension. That means you don't have the chronic disease. Men with conditions including arthritis, coronary artery disease, stroke, and diabetes gained more years of disease-free living than uh, years with disability. So the best improvements were seen for those with respiratory difficulties and those living post-stroke. So it's definitely some positive information. Uh, women got an increase of life expectancy as well, but only and not as much, 2.1 years, and about a two-year increase in disease-free living. Uh, but uh, the m- biggest improvement for women was uh, increase in their disability-free years. So... Big plus for both sexes uh, and probably everyone in between, it's nice to know that our medical practices are making progress that even shows up in such a blunt instrument as that kind of a statistical study. Some good advice along with good news, closing the blinds at night actually helps protect your health. Exposure to even moderate ambient lighting during nighttime sleep compared to... Uh, to sleeping in a very dimly lit room harms your cardiovascular function during sleep and increases your insulin resistance the next morning. Wow, who knew? Uh, Close the blinds, draw the curtains, and turn off the lights before uh, before bed. This is a Northwestern uh, University Medical Center study, and uh, they showed that even a single exposure to moderate room lighting during sleep actually impaired glucose Uh, sensitivity and cardiovascular regulation. We've already known that light exposure increases the heart rate because it activates the sympathetic nervous system, gets your alertness ready because your brain thinks it's morning. Uh, Now, if you have a screen on in the room, either falling asleep in front of the TV or in front of your computer, you are sleeping in a lit room and So what happens then? Well, your cell's insulin resistance the next morning means that your cells don't respond to insulin, so your pancreas makes more of it, and over time, you become deaf and your blood sugar goes up. An earlier study in JAMA also showed this. So the biological changes that occur at night, people don't realize it. And it turns out, I did not know this, but 40% of Americans sleep with either a bedside lamp on or a light in the bedroom or fall asleep with the, or sleep with the TV on. So it really makes a huge difference. And what you can do is use a red light, an amber or an orange light is less stimulating to the brain. That's been known for a very long time. I remember all the night lights I ever had as a child had a little orange bulb, uh, blackout shades or an eye mask. It, Are good, especially if you're a shift worker. Control the amount of light that's getting into your eyeballs because it makes a difference to the quality of your sleep and helps prevent diabetes. So a little bit of, a little bit of healthy advice and another bit of advice related to sleep. uh, The ideal bedtime for a healthy heart. So if you want the healthiest possible heart, go to bed between 10 and 11 PM. This is a new study it came uh it was let's see it was actually a uh private company looking at circadian rhythm, so let's keep that in mind. It was reported in the Washington Post, however, so I'm sure they did a little fact checking looked at eighty eight thousand av- of adults average age of sixty one who wore devices that measured their falling asleep and waking up times. And they then went on to look at how many of these people went on later to suffer a stroke, heart attack, or heart failure. They followed them for about six years. Those who went to bed between 10 and 11 had the lowest rates of cardiovascular disease. Uh, Compared with those who went to bed between 11 and 12, they had a 12% higher risk of cardiovascular, while those bedding down after midnight had a 25% higher risk. Dozing off before 10 p.m., was also associated with an increased risk, a whopping 24%. So you got to work with that body clock. We evolved to be daytime creatures that go to bed at night. And apparently, as we've already discussed, that has a massive, massive influence on uh, our bodies and our health. One more bit of good advice plants, right? House plants. Uh, The risk of suffering an ischemic stroke, the most common type of stroke, is 16% less for people who have green spaces less than 300 meters from their homes. If you can't have a green space 300 meters from your home, like a park, uh, have some houseplants in your home. But Houseplants remove indoor pollutants, and this study looked at the 2.5 micron Particles, nitrogen dioxide, and soot particles, and they found that if you had a green space within three hundred meters, many of those were removed from the from your breath, what you were breathing, by those plants. A substantial uh, decrease on the order of five percent in risk for a stroke. So, if you can't be, live near a national park, which many of us cannot, at least get some health house plants and you know, maybe some ferns or something in the bedroom. Unless you're super mold allergic, it's your best move for improving your stroke risk and a pretty easy one to take. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to askdrdawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at askdrdawn. For now, this is Dr. Don saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.